Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Sam Ottman. He is a developer and former biochemist with an interest in urbit, artificial intelligence, and weird software. So welcome to the show. Hi, Stuart. What is the weirdest piece of software you've come across recently? It's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, Hoon is is possibly in the running for the weirdest uh, programming language, at least. Um, one of those things that horseshoes all the way around from bad to good, in a way. Um, I have been a critic of it over the years, but uh, I do have to admit that people who use it have a tendency to really like it. It's and- one of the weirdest looking because <laughs> it looks like a bunch of runes. I remember one of my friends, uh, when he first started checking out Urbit, he, he's a software developer, and he said that basically it felt like he was summoning something from the deep when he was writing in Hoon. Yeah, yeah it, it has that weird sort of esoteric property for sure. Uh, I've described it syntactically as the love child of APL and Lisp. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, way to look at it. Um, and yeah. now you say that they really like Hoon, but do you think that Hoon actually develops a step function better in terms of, uh, and for those of, the, our, those of our listeners who don't know, Hoon is a um, functional programming language that was created by the Urbit people to build Urbit uh, and essentially create this whole new operating system and whole new internet and permissionless network, uh, basically. And so do you, does it actually provide some sort of benefit to these, uh, to these programmers? I think it is it is difficult to separate uh, the benefits of Hoon from the benefits of Urbit. the The whole idea when they were built, when Curtis originally was building this system, was to have a tightly integrated stack, like a a flag day reboot of computer programming from scratch. And um, Hoon is is sort of hand in glove with Urbit, and that's that's the best thing it has going for it. I, I maintain that, especially at this point in Urbit's development, it would be nice if there was a language that was less bizarre looking. And it goes a little deeper than the runes. There's also, it's called the, the Scrabble words, the standard library. Everything is four letters long, exactly. And some of the names are really good, and some of them are just a Procrustean fit. You know, it's, it's whatever four-letter word would be closest to what's going on there. And so I, there's room for a more normal-looking language that has Hoon semantics, but um, it also serves as a filter. You know, it's it's um, not so hard to learn as all that. It's, it's It looks like it will be hard to learn, and there is a very steep learning curve up front. And so those things... They have a tendency to filter for very smart and very dedicated uh, developers, but also maybe not as many as Urbit might otherwise see. And um, for now, that seems to be a reasonable trade-off. There's also little to nothing that can be done about it without uh, you know, substantial labor. Yeah. My understanding is that a company called Zorp is in the process, perhaps, of working on a 
different, more normal looking language that will target Knock, which is the VM that Hoon also runs on that will be Urbit compatible, part of the Urbit ecosystem. And that would be a good development. I, I look forward to seeing that if it uh, comes through. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, well, and you, a couple minutes ago, you said it's great for where we are, it might be a, a trade-off for where we are on the Urbit development cycle. So where exactly are we on the Urbit development cycle if you were to kind of describe that? It's a good question. I and mean, Urbit is in the, the make or break period is, is what I see um, really over the next maybe two years. And I think make is at this point more likely than break, you know, Urbit has uh, less than 10,000 people active at any given point uh, by now. But, you know, it's one of those things like the Velvet Underground where, you know, nobody listened to Velvet Underground, but everybody who did started their own band. So nobody's on Urbit, but everybody who is on Urbit is developing for Urbit. Yeah, it's uh, a ridiculous amount of time. I mean, you know, there's the vanity metric of how many people are actually on Urbit. And then there's like actual real usage. And I imagine that those real usage uh, statistics for developers on Urbit is quite high. Like they they all spend their lives in it. It's it's kind of nuts. Yeah, the ecosystem is, is quite robust, uh, especially uh, in comparison to the number of people using it. And yeah, there are there are hosting solutions now, which I think is a big uh, drop in the difficulty to get started. You really just sign up for it like anything else right now. And uh, yeah, it's one of, you know, like a lot of things that are VC funded, they can afford to do it for free for a while. And, and uh, I think probably we'll find ourselves in a situation where people will see the use of it and will be willing to to keep the whole ship afloat uh, as things go by. Urbit is a little like Bitcoin in that uh, succeeding um, depends, I think, to a significant degree on how rapidly the conventional alternatives to it uh, crash by their inherent contradictions, you know, because and Urbit offers a, an owned um and private uh, alternative to social media, something that's truly peer-to-peer. -peer. And that has some compelling advantages, um, but it's also competing with free in all sorts of different domains. You know, Instagram uh -huh. does more and has a lot more people on it and you don't have to pay for it, but um, it does leave you, you know, a surf in Mark Zuckerberg's empire. Uh, and so by competitors, you, you specifically mean other things like Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or TikTok or all these different kind of social media things. Is, is Urbit a social media platform? Urbit is uh, perhaps first best understood as a social media platform. It is a personal server. So there are a lot of things you can do with it. But the main thing that a server is used for is communicating with other people and the, the the advantage that Herbert really brings to the table is having a truly peer-to-peer -peer interaction uh, that um, can resemble any number of forms of social media, but has the advantage that everybody's account uh, ab belongs to them in an absolute sense. And Herbert really has no competition in that space to speak of. There are some very early sort of hand-wavy projects that do something... Mm, plausibly similar but mostly other than the what we call the mainframe social networks like the ones you all mentioned all of the ones you mentioned rather uh there are uh federated systems like matrix and mastodon and what have you and uh 
in some ways an improvement over the mainframes, but uh, in in the important ways, I consider them to be the worst of both worlds. You know, you you still have a a a, a lord basically that you have to answer to. You can pick which one. But Mastodon has this whole thing that Twitter at least doesn't have where whoever runs your instance probably doesn't get along with other instances and then you can't communicate with those instances because they don't like them. And the this does provide a certain amount of isolation, you know, like basically the the lowly people don't want, well, nobody wants to talk to them and a lot of people don't want to talk to the people they consider to be Nazis, you know, that sort of thing. But it also means that uh, it is inherently quite a bit more re restricted. And, uh, you know, even if you just feel like keeping an eye on the Nazis is a good thing, you don't have to agree with them or anything like that. But you can't, you know, because your server does not commune with them. And so Urbit's um, alternative where everyone is a, a peer of everyone else uh, means that the people who are blocked are exactly the people that you want to have blocked. No one else can do that for you. And I, I think that is a much more durable solution. Um, what about Holochain? Is Holochain? Holochain. That's an interesting one. I, I, I've, yeah, I knew those people uh, way back, back in the day, 2017 or so when they were first getting started. Um, I wouldn't count on Holochain ever amounting to anything personally. Uh, if any of you are out there listening, no offense, but uh yeah, it, it is very high concept and um, doesn't really have doesn't really ship, you know, when all when all is said and done. And I think the principles that Urbit is based on are on much more solid grounds than Holochain. Uh, Holochain has several interesting ideas that I think will be incorporated into other things if they haven't been already. But it's it's not a true alternative. You also have a secure scuttlebutt, which I think is still out there. That is the other thing that is is in a way closest to what Urbit is achieving, but it has a very different focus. And um, the the biggest difference is that um, Secure Subtlebutt is a protocol. It's like a JSON protocol based on making a personal chain of signatures and then peer distribution of data. And that's all very interesting. What Urbit has is a Turing complete virtual server. And so it has a programming language and you can offer any application that you want on top of Urbit. So everything that people build for Urbit makes Urbit more valuable to run because you might want any one of those things or several, but you get them all uh, when you put up your server, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it has more legs. I like Secure Scuttlebutt actually. I think it does some pretty cool stuff. But it's not a full- But it, can't it won't replace and it can't replace social media. Mm -hmm. It just isn't meant to even- Mm. Okay, uh, so we could talk about the complete virtual personal server and what exactly that is doing, but I would love to get your impression of what's going on with AI. Um, what What is the latest thing you've, like, well, what is your impression? Where are we in a year from now in terms of AI? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a, you know, an, a professional computer programmer, but I'm an amateur or a newcomer when it comes to artificial intelligence. Um, the things that I'm participating in slash working on are kind of under the radar as far as that's concerned. I think there, there will be, you know, when I'm ready to talk about all that stuff, I will, but there, there's potential for um, a great deal of improvement in how the state of the art is done. Um, but yeah, um, in many ways, like other than the project that I mentioned, which is, it is not my project, but I've been a, a cheerleader and, and 
uh, sideline participant for many years with that. Uh, my interest was in, kind of kicked off by the entire AI safetyist movement, especially when they started uh, petitioning governments to heavily regulate the use of GPUs and software, which I think is uh, dystopian and absurd and also completely unjustifiable by the state of the art or any plausible uh, extension of it. You know, there uh, are some bridges we might be crossing at some point when we come to them, but I don't think any of that is inevitable, actually. Um, okay, and can you talk more about this regulation of gov of GPUs and software? I, like, I understand the GPU, you know, you can kind of try to, you know, regulate the people who are producing these things, likely mostly in, in Taiwan. Um, uh, but then how do you regulate software? Like what are, what are they, what are the government's propose or what are the governments being lobbied, uh, to propose? Yeah. The answer to how you regulate software is poorly in fact, but, uh, it all, it comes from, uh, just a confluence of forces. There are, there is a neurotic camp of people who intellectually uh have been let's say interested rather than involved in artificial intelligence for a couple of decades uh they're they had programs that they established that they were convinced this is the way that artificial intelligence is going to work and they got way way out over their skis about like what a super intelligence would look like and you know they got all like you hear if you hear people talking about instrumental convergence or mesa optimizers or sharp left turns or any of these sorts of things. It all comes from the same place. Intuition, or not intuition, outcome pumps, uh, paperclip maximizers. Um, for some reason, they're obsessed with asking a computer to make you a cellularly identical strawberry. These are all shibboleths of this group. And the most important thing to realize about this group is that while it inspired a lot of people to get into artificial intelligence, None of their intellectual work, and I mean none of it, paid off. It, artificial intelligence has succeeded to the degree that it has succeeded through a completely different set of uh, techniques. You know, the the big uh, the big language models, the what they call frontier models, are the thing that people find most interesting, and they are very impressive in many ways. And what's going on with these? is there are these massive, absolutely massive training runs where they take a fairly simplistic neural network, which does have some biological analogies, but they're very loose ones. It's, it's best, neural network is best understood as a mathematical formalism rather than a biomimicry. And they take an appreciable fraction of the public internet and they sort of cook it through this gradient descent process uh, into something which predicts tokens and uh you can think of it as a lossy compression search engine in a way there is more to it than that but there is not a lot more to it than that and so when these people they are convinced for no good reason really no good reason that in some ways that to them make a lot of sense but just appear totally baffling from the outside these things are going to develop a will to power and start subverting human desires and interests in various ways. So because the, the training of frontier models involves this absolutely enormous amount of compute, they are petitioning governments because they want an AI pause. They want to make sure that you don't make a slightly better chatbot because it might accidentally turn into Skynet. That's really what it comes down to. And uh, so, you know, 
large data servers full of GPUs are, you can at least find them. They're, they're in principle an easy target. In practice, very much not so, but you know, there's really only, there's one core supplier, NVIDIA, of the, the GPUs that you need for this sort of thing. And so this is what they think they, they are going to get out of it, is, is a situation where there's an international agreement to pause the training of these models and that, you know, data centers will be inspected to make sure they're not breaking the rules and whatever. But what they are inviting is an administrative state to have general oversight over software, which uh, insofar as people inside of the AI community uh, or inside of AI research and companies are promoting this sort of thing, it is because that gives them a moat. You know, the, the most plausible outcome is that if you want to run uh, eventually anything that's kind of the problem with government regulation but initially let's say a large training run involving a bunch of gpus you have to fill out reams and reams and reams of paperwork and so in addition to the natural expense of writing competitor systems to the ones that these people are distributing then you also have uh the administrative burden and of course the administration is under no uh, obligation to permit you to do these sorts of things which is a focus of lobbying and possibly bribes you know there are all sorts of ways to cut out some moat there um i do believe that most of the people who are uh involved in safetyism because it really is mostly it's a best understood as a religious movement i think uh are honest in what they're doing um even potentially, you know, I like to be generous to people, the ones that are representing these large um, uh, labs and companies, you know, but it, it, they, there is certainly um, a self-interested motive in uh, any of the plausible actual outcomes here. And of course, the, the government always loves to have a reason to build another administrative state, lets them reward their supporters with sinecure jobs and, you know, just fiddle. They, they're bureaucratic fiddlers. They just love that. Um, uh, great. I love that, that, uh, that spiel on, on what's going on. Um, uh, so many different ways we can go in that I'm, that I'm lost to where we should go in. Um, the, mathematical formalism rather than biomimicry as a as a neural networks is something very interesting uh, mm. the frontier models and the gpus and the regulation of gpus is very interesting the safetyism uh and the religious aspect of the safetyism yeah because what you're saying is that it feels like we could go into a consciousness talk as well it feels like mm -hmm. The same issue we're facing with this particular group of safetyists seems like it's um relevant to the larger discussion of humanity's basic weakness, which is that even intelligent people with a lot of processing power in their brains hear an idea that sounds really good, but just because the idea sounds really good doesn't make it a good idea. And very few people are capable of recognizing a good idea versus a, a bad idea. Um, and and I don't know what it is about people. You know, I would like to think that I'm one of those people that can 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 separate good ideas from bad ideas. And I think part of the reason is because I've just been, I'm, I'm an optimist. And so I believe in good ideas. And then I, I pay attention to the, um, 
the outcomes of those ideas. And then over time and enough pain and suffering, I've basically learned what separates the good and the good and the, and the bad ideas. But that's my own bias. I could be paying attention to all the all the bad ideas and I wouldn't really have any idea until, you know, I, I, I die basically because the world is so complex and reality is so combinatorially explosive. Um, and so what do you think about this? Like, cause it's like, there's so many in the past uh, three years of, of really, really bad ideas taken as good ideas, yeah. but, and not, not only in the last three years, in the last thousands of years of history, there's been bad idea, bad, bad idea. And people just like, it's just like grab onto it. And yeah. Go, okay, well, that's a good idea. Let's go to war. Let's go. There's, to, there's go to no war. Yeah. 100% reliable way to tell if you've locked on to the wrong idea from the inside, that would be great. Of course, you know, have a perfect Oracle a tiny inner voice that tells you when you're right and wrong, you know, we could get a lot of things done really fast that way. But uh, certainly, you know, the, the willingness, I think to, to test your ideas, to um, accept new data, those sorts of things, those are important. Um, but again, you know, you, uh, it's, it becomes fairly circular if you, if we're trying to like tackle it from an epistemic or epistemological angle, because, these people that I've been referring to will, of course, tell you, and they have even, some of them have written some lengthy blog posts on how it is that you're supposed to be able to falsify your own intuitions and be open to new evidence and that sort of thing. And then when you see them not doing it, um, it that is a difficult uh, point of attack because they will say, how could you say such a thing? We are, we are known for our rational thinking, right? Uh, I think the the error, the, the basic error that the doomers, the safetyists are making is uh, grounded in intuitions about intelligence, which are, are very natural given our embodiment. See, this is kind of a key thing. We are uh, an evolutionarily adapted mammalian organism. We have a full set of mammalian features, you know, from warm blood and feeding our young through breasts, hence mammal, to uh, dominance of territory, violent impulses, fear of death, you know, pain, all of these sorts of things. Ego, personality. I think if anybody, you know, I spent enough time around other mammals, I'm pretty sure that they have something roughly equivalent to an ego. You know, they, they don't have the same sort of complex consciousness that we do, but it's tough to look at a cat or a dog and say that they don't have a sense of self that way, you know, uh, and, and they may, they may not have the intellectual fear of death that humans are burdened with for having a concept to hang on it. But, uh, you know, mammals mammals don't like to risk their own extinction. They want to have children, progeny, all of these sorts of things. And so there is a natural mistake, but nonetheless a grave mistake that you can make when you see, okay, here are these very impressive in many ways linguistic systems. Well, you can have a conversation with ChatGPT. There, the chat GPT, there's a good paper on this chat GPT can't actually reason like it does not have general purpose reasoning capabilities. But I don't think there's any reason to think that a better computer program or maybe even an extension of the general sort of networks that chat GPT is based on could have a general purpose reasoning ability, you know, and they don't have a world model, but they have a very excellent simulation of one in a lot of circumstances, and so on and so forth. However, this is a simulation. It's very, very important to understand this. What is going on in the background is a very flat 
mathematical abstraction of the approximate concepts in a neural network that has been trained in a specific way to predict uh, speech, you know, predict the next token. There is more to the, the shipping models than just take the input and predict the next token, but that is fundamentally what they do. And like any other computer program, they, I would, you know, I could hedge and say they should be assumed to, but I am going to go ahead and say that they do not have these properties of embodiment. They are nowhere in the training data. ChatGPT does not have different emotions about the word corncob and the word death. You know, it just doesn't because it does not have emotions. It does not have anything vaguely resembling the biochemical correlates of emotions. There is no equivalent of a neurotransmitter. There is no equivalent of uh, glands, none of these sorts of things. It is absurd to think that it has a fear of death. And it is very difficult to reason where a will to power would come from. Uh, there, there is nothing resembling an ego in these programs. However, it, you know, for whatever reason, um, when you watch CGI, normally people are not confused and think, oh, wow, goblins are actually real. No, a computer program is simulating a goblin. And if you cut it, simulated blood will come out and all of these sorts of things. But like, I think people understand that NPCs in a video game do not feel pain when you hit them, even though they shout and scream and blood shoots everywhere. But now we have these linguistic constructs, which can have very sophisticated outputs would very much resemble in many ways intelligence. I don't think it's even so wrong to call them intelligent in their own way, but their own way is massively and dramatically different from the way that humans are. And it lacks all of these features that would make them dangerous in the rogue AI way. And it won't develop them by accident. It's just not a plausible outcome. Uh a lot of lot of thoughts as you were talking there. The, the, I've heard this argument before, usually from the other side, and it wasn't really an argument. It was a Twitter debate that I got into with somebody, uh, and there and I was like questioning the exact same things you're you're questioning. And the response was that, well, how do you know? How do you know whether it doesn't have intelligence? And it goes back to the same question of like, well, how do I know you don't have intelligence? How do I know that? Yeah. That, uh, any of the solipsism, like it's it's the and and it reminds me that it's essentially there's a mystical property of conscious consciousness because it's mystical to us. And we don't understand consciousness, but then mm. these guys in safety are actually more mystical because they're positing that, that out of this emergent behavior, there's going to be a mystical uh, emergence of technology that will, that is also happens to be evil uh, and will kill us all. Basically. It is worth understanding how they got there because prior to the development, like the, the unreasonable success of neural networks and attention transformers and you know there are a few techniques that don't need to all be enumerated but there are these tricks that really pay off or reinforcement learning is another one of them and and prior to right around 2015 2016 is when the the big neural networks trained on a lot of gpus with various ways started paying off there is a long history through the whole ai winter certainly of speculating on what the necessary preconditions for building an artificial intelligence would be. And most of these people, and there is a intellectual continuity, they are the same people. Most of these people were under the impression, reasonable guess turned out to be wrong, that a close simulation of the processes 
of a human being was going to be the way to get an artificial intelligence. You know, humans have goals. We want to have a goal module. Humans have concepts. We're going to need to write these concepts into these things. You know, humans have reward functions in a way. Humans don't really have a reward function, but certainly humans experience reward, right? And so these things are going to have to have reward feedbacks. And then there's all of this speculation about, well, what if the goals go wrong? You know, the, the prototypal, what if you tell it to make a paperclip and it makes the entire world into paperclips, which I don't actually understand how someone gets past the inherent absurdity of that for long enough to take it seriously. But I, I don't, I'm not here to take down paperclip maximizers or other specific concepts. I really just kind of want to explain how they got way over their skis here because none of these things turned out to be the case. There, there is a loss function. It's not the same thing as a reward. You can convince these artificial intelligences in various ways to serve human goals, but they don't have goals and reward. That is simply not a part of how the code works. You know, there was also guesses that like imitating various structures within the human brain would be a useful way to do this sort of thing. And that is not what happened. A neural network in a computer has a vastly, vastly different arrangement of the so-called neurons from actual neurons and also leaves off several very obvious and critical things. They don't turn out to be necessary that actual neurons have most notably neurotransmitters and chemical gradients. And we, you know, there is still a hard problem of consciousness, but we definitely are able to relate simple neurotransmitters such as dopamine to reward. You know, and nonetheless, like they they proceed in this intellectual frame that they spent decades building up without having uh, updated their priors, shall we say, to recognize that the programs that they are actually afraid of are vastly different, based on vastly different premises, and do not have the the um, the risk profiles that they were training themselves up to meet but are succeeding at this, the goal uh, which they predetermined would mark a period of great danger, the whole alignment problem and those sorts of things. I could talk about alignment briefly. Alignment and training are the same thing. They're the same thing because it doesn't have goals. It has training data. And so, you know, you can ask chat GPT, you know, is it virtuous? Is it good to murder people? And ChatGPT will say, no, murdering people is terrible because that's what the, the training data has, you know? And like, hey, how would the humans feel if you turned the entire earth into paperclips? Oh, I would never do that. I am an AI system that is here to help you, sir. You know, yeah, the chatbots are extremely sycophantic, like uh, to a degree that somewhat bothers me, actually. Like, it'd be nice if they had a little bit more of a backbone, but th that's neither here nor there. Um, the, the notion that they would self-modify and, and slip the landscape of their training data is just a profound misunderstanding of what they actually are, which is, you know, a curve fit to a absolutely massive hyper parameter space at great expense that in many ways, like probably the single best model of these things that you don't hear very much is that it is a lossily compressed search engine across the whole of the training data, mm. you know, it, it is, it is more capable of synthesis than that would imply, but not by that much, not really.
That's a very interesting because you've, you've mentioned that word a couple of times, lossly compressed, and I'd like to understand what that means. I also want to understand what a transformer exactly is, an intention transformer is. But before we go in there, I want to mention something I've read recently. You might have seen it as well, which is that uh, the big elephant in the room uh, in terms of AI uh, it basically just took the entire Internet, put it behind a paywall and is now charging uh, charging people via an API in order to make that uh, internet in a very valuable way. I, I use it every day. So uh, it's like a, they've, what they've done is actually made a large, uh, they've turned the non-usable internet that was slowly getting crushed by Google's complete lack of ability to to stop mm -hmm. uh, letting the advertisers get in the way of the algorithm. Um, and they've now made the internet useful again in this radically different way. Uh, any Anything you want to talk about from that spiel? Sure. Um, the I'll, I'll cover the intention transformer one I, just briefly because at the level of detail that we want here, an attention transformer is the specific model of neural network training that is used in LLMs and GPT systems. And there's a paper called Attention is All You Need. It was very influential. And so there are variations on in the space of what we call deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence, et cetera, and attention transformers are very popular. It's a technique that has been paying off. And um, yeah, it there's a risk that if I tried to describe in intimate mechanical detail what attention transformer is, I would get some things wrong. And I think that's that's suitable to our purposes. Cool. And then lossy compression. Yes. So that that is uh, yeah that is an interesting one. So. Despite the fact <laughs> that uh, none of the doomers ever decided that Google search is a risk to the planet for whatever reason, who knows, you know, it is a sophisticated artificial intelligence that answers your questions. What it, How it answers your questions is it has its own interior copy of the internet from scraping and it figures out which websites to show you. And then it is generous enough to the rest of the internet to show you the copy that is actually on the internet instead of its internal copy. So as a next step, you can imagine a search engine, it's still not lossy, but it just, it has the whole internet inside of it. It periodically pulls in the rest of the internet to, to train the search, right? And then instead of sending you outside of Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing or whatever you're using, it just gives you its copy, you know? that would raise an enormous hue and cry. People would be upset, right? So instead, what they are doing is they are training this massive black box model. Uh, it's not quite a black box, translucent a little bit, but let's call it a black box model on all of this public training data. And so it compresses the training data because the model is smaller than the training data. It takes all of these commonalities and all of these vectors which connect one word to another and it builds it into a very general purpose model. And so if you ask it things like, tell me as much as you know about the capital of Djibouti, you know, barring confabulations, which is the better word for hallucinations because sometimes these things just miss the mark and they make stuff up, you know, but uh, except for that, it will give you, you know, basically the same sort of information that you could have gotten from Wikipedia or the CIA World Factbook or what have you, because it was trained on those things. And when it comes to code in particular, 
um, you know, they they have <laughs> they have obscured this as best they can. But uh, Copilot used to be in the habit of emitting rather large chunks of other people's code, including occasionally private keys and things like that. Like none of which should be surprising. It really is trained on this data and its output is based on this data. And so it, it really, it's very useful to think of it as a lossily compressed search engine, because instead of sending you back out into the internet to take your pick of which of the page results is the one that you want, it just synthesizes something from the same data, which is custom to your query, um, but which is very much based on this training data. And that is all these things know how to do. That's their whole shtick, is that. And and it's funny, because it's like, how do you jump from that to this thing is going to, tomorrow in a year, once GPT-5 comes out, is going to destroy us all? How do you how do you get there? Do you know right. how? Right. To... I have difficulty making that leap, yes. <laughs> that, it, that it will spontaneously grow uh, an ego or a personality or a soul, you know? Yeah, let's I mean, go. There in, are some like we could. Yeah, let's go into the biochemistry because you you studied biochemistry. It sounds like you have a strong mm. understanding of like autonomous uh, the autonomous um, uh, nervous system. You know, we got this nervous system with these glands that you mentioned, and like all of our intelligence is so wrapped up in this body that we carry around. Um, and like, and can you talk more about your understanding of embodiment and what makes up embodiment according to your understanding? Sure. Um, I have some like metaphysical and what have you views that are somewhat unusual and I don't mind exploring that afterwards, but I do like to stick to the shared understanding of reality because it, it's very easy for things to be dismissed on the basis of a different understanding of things like the soul or what have you, you know, and none of that I think is necessary here. So a good view tying all of this into uh, the AI question, the deep learning question is that humans differ from animals because we are the result of two optimization processes rather than one. One of those optimization processes is evolution by natural selection. And somehow, call it a random walk, whatever, the, the evolution is not quite a random walk, but it, you know, it's a good model, right? We found ourselves in a situation where we were group hunters that were throwing objects to kill prey which is sort of the that's the unusual thing that's where our branch of the primate line starts to go from being largely vegetarian to being hunters of uh the megafauna and what have you and this ties into you know we were able to become larger due to a richer food supply and the the intelligence involved in pack hunting Somehow, just whatever mechanism, perhaps, you know, the hand of God passed across the earth, but it really doesn't matter. We developed language and language becomes that second optimization process. We are all trained in at least one language by our elders, and we receive a much wider range of embodied knowledge through the mechanism of language. And we communicate this with other people and we train our children and to a much more substantial degree. For an animal, the only thing that an animal leaves behind in their offspring is their DNA. They, the animals differ somewhat in how much care they give their young, you know, uh, but it's better to model that as pr protection. You know, there, there are some learned behaviors in some of the more complex animals, uh, but it, it's a rounding error compared to the way that language works. 
And so the part of ourselves that we identify with more strongly is that language using part of ourselves, but it exists on top of this evolutionary substrate, which is the same as any animal has in respect of like our genes, they don't really want something, but they do, you know, at the same time, like we, we are a propagator of our genes, which has become a propagator and a mutator of our means, you know, mutation in evolution is random. That much is on very solid ground. Uh, mutation in linguistics in, in memetics, right. Is adaptive. Absolutely. You know, you learn something new, you, there is a deliberate process of, of formation and fitting of that to a linguistic context, any number of ways that it goes into. And so the, the, this is that, that high level overview. So we have this embodiment and then we have taken aspects uh, as much as we can fit, right. Of, of this linguistic substrate. And we have taught machines to do this. And this is where, you know, when you start talking about super intelligences, it's worth understanding that the very first computer was a super intelligence. The entire reason for building ENIAC was so that we could calculate ballistic tables faster than and more accurately than humans could do it. So the very first computer and every single computer is doing intellectual work faster and more accurately than humans can do it themselves. A very, very specialized superintelligence, right? And so when you start talking about a perfectly general superintelligence, it, it really depends on where you're willing to draw these boundaries and what that even means, you know? I think it it focuses in the wrong area for a lot of reasons, especially since the extension of the techniques that we're currently using, I said this before, they are not magically going to turn server farms into mammals. And, you know, I am willing to grant in principle, although I want to say right away that I think it would be extremely difficult and useless, that we could make a, a robot that screams when you hit it and fears death, you know, and has its own goals that it tries to serve and what have you, we would have to do it deliberately. We would have to solve a lot of unsolved problems. And man, you know, like, let's build artificial labor that will also go on strike. That's not very capitalist. I just don't see it happening. Uh, fascinating. Uh, what do you think about this idea that we now have a tool? Uh, we have a tool that basically creates like this awesome human, human super intelligence, but within this linguistic rational world, was that a surprise? Wasn't it a surprise to everybody that that happened? Like, weren't they thinking that self-driving cars would happen first? Like, what is the significance that it's our ability to language and reason that was the first kind of real consumer application of this technology? Hmm. So, uh, I want to push back slightly on some of that just by by spelling out kind of how these things landed. Um, one of them is, yeah, uh, self-driving cars, right? Like there are a few cities now where they are taking some passengers on a limited basis. So that's kind of crossed the threshold, but it's one of those things that is extremely safety oriented. And there is a whole long tail. Like, you know, if it's if heavy rain is planned, they don't pick up passengers. They have no ability to deal with snow, you know, and they're they're taking it slowly because people can die and they they have a, a strong motive to make sure that the cars are in less accidents than human drivers produce, especially less accidents where the car itself is at fault. So there's a very high bar to clear. They're taking it slow. I think they're doing the right thing. I also think, you know, at the pace that we are going, self-driving cars will be available throughout the developed world inside of 10 years. 
in some capacity or another. It's it's coming along the pipeline. But so before we got to the large language models, the, the big breakthroughs were in voice-to-speech and image classifiers. There is a, a well-quoted XKCD comic book, which is about the difference between a project which would take a developer three hours and a project which will take a developer a research team in five years, right? And so the first one is, you know, so I, I have these pictures and I want you to tell me if they're inside a national park. And they say, okay, no problem. GIS data, it'll take me a few hours. And I would like you to tell me which pictures have a bird. Okay, research team in five years. Well, that comic was published more than five years ago. And so these were the first real breakthroughs. There, there were carefully crafted voice-to-speech systems that were built very early on, Dragon Dictate and what have you. As long as you talk to them carefully and you sort of stay in bounds, they worked reasonably well. But there was a, a capability leap in terms of being able to turn because, because of any number of ambiguities in like homonyms and what have you and contextual spellings and, and so on and so forth. And this was bridged using the techniques that we now see being used in LLMs. Uh, then the other one being image classifiers, those came along um, relative years ago now, but they, they were a very big deal at the time where you pair hand trained classification of images with uh, these neural network training systems. And yeah, another one that uh, caught a lot of people's attention that I might return to is uh, AlphaGo and AlphaZero, where they produced a world-class Go player out of self-play which is a very impressive achievement. And chess was beaten using effectively conventional programming techniques. But Go was widely held to not be amenable to that kind of massive search split space exploration. And so they trained it on an imitator, basically. You know, they, they had a self-play system and sometimes one, one of their versions of the neural network would win and one of them would lose all, every time, basically. Uh, I don't think Go actually has ties. So let's say every time, right? And what they would do is they would train it to predict, to imitate the winning systems and also to anti-imitate the losing systems, which you get you get more bang for your buck that way. Um, but yeah, it, it is the, the familiar sort of massive system that is trained on data to produce a... a high, um, so... The thing that makes Go tractable here is, is that the outcome is absolute. Like there is no ambiguity about whether you have won or lost a game of Go. Um, and then we get to this, this modern era where there are generative art programs and there are the chatbots and what have you. And the difference between the classifiers and the chatbots is largely a matter of compute scale. There, there are some differences in terms of how these networks are trained, but there, there has been no major uh, technical breakthrough between image classifiers, voice to text, and then uh, token predictors and the art thing, which is another one. Like, I, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I am very sympathetic to artists who are like, hey, wait, you know, this thing is just using our art to make copies of what we do you can tell it to like imitate my style and it'll do it like that's that is abusing the idea of fair use like yeah you can say it's transformative work but who's doing the transformation and that kind of comes back to the the lossy compress lossy compression of training data you know 
there is only one reason why Doll E can make Superman for you. It's because he's seen a whole bunch of copies of Superman. Some of those belong to DC. Some of them are fan fan art from Deviant. But like, yeah, yeah. So it is. It is a matter. Like it, they're right. The 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 studios are right. Basically, that that it is. It is taking original art art and and making. No, but there isn't a uh, there isn't a step function in what these things are doing in terms of recreating it. It's basically it's copy it's copying them. Yeah, they have certainly learned many 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 features and techniques which are common to art. You know that that much is the case. But like, why do they know what SpongeBob SquarePants looks like, man? And the reason is lots and lots of people have drawn SpongeBob, and these those images are packed into the the neural network and it is lossy so that's one of the things that i've mentioned like a a hush hush project that i'm somewhat involved in and one of the advantages of that should we uh you know be able to reveal it to the public is maintaining the connection between the training data and the output of a trained model so that you can ask questions like okay so here's spongebob squarepants driving a dune buggy across mars right what are the top 10 images that went into your rendition yep. of this? Like what, what did you, what were you drawing on the most in terms of where your neural activation, because right, there is, there is something which is transformative, but maybe not in a legal sense about these images for sure. They, they are not simply collaging pieces of art that they have seen, but um, I am very sympathetic to artists who are like, Hey, listen, you can say like, draw me Marilyn Monroe in the style of my name and it will do something that looks like I did it. Yeah. And it's like, you are directly competing with me on the basis of my sweat and labor. And I, I would like to see a, a resolution of those very, uh, very fair-minded complaints that artists have about this uh, that still allows these tools to be used because they're great. That's the other side of it is, is uh, AI generative art is lots of fun. It's getting better and it, it opens the the vision of art to many, many, many more people. And yeah, there, there are issues, there are issues of fairness, but I think that's, that really is a boon in general. Um, okay. Very interesting. Um, I lost an amazing question that I was going to have for our last, last five minutes, but I will go back to what we were just talking about and how the Marilyn Monroe, like the artist who's had all their stuff trained by the, on the LM is trained on their work uh, is able to basically say, you know what you you're the, this LLM is ripping me off essentially. And there isn't a clear use case or there isn't a clear licensing model that works, but in a, in a different sense with the character AI and the kind of like creating celebrities likenesses using AI and image image, there's a clear licensing win there, which is that the 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 celebrity is selling their likeness to the to Facebook to then and Facebook is going and creating all these. And I don't understand why Facebook had to change their names because it's like for Kylie Jenner or whatever the names are. I'm not very good at pop culture, um, mm. but they're creating a, 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 a celebrity AI avatar that has a completely different name, but looks like the celebrity. It doesn't make any sense why they did that unless there's some sort of legal reason. Um, but uh, uh, but there's a clear use case. Of, of getting paid for a rendition by these AI, but the, in the art and the music and the films and the uh, those things, there's probably in the writing, there's probably not 
that good of a use case? How do you, I mean, are they going to ask OpenAI for the royalties? Like, well, how, how is that going to work? It seems like very far-fetched that, that the artist would actually be able to get, get that type of licensing. Well, it's certainly convenient to the people who have trained these models that they have done it in such a way that the connection to the actual training data in the outputs is severed, you know? Mm. It's so, the, I think the best, uh, and I think judges are going to be leaning on this heavily, the best analogy in prior art is sampling, because music sampling specifically, because according to the law, it does not matter how much you change a sample. If you start with a piece of somebody else's music, you owe them a licensing fee. It also doesn't matter how much an original piece of music sounds like a sample. And so it these cases often hinge on forensic evidence. Um, not It isn't for legal reasons, but the, the DAWs, the digital audio workstations that people use to make this sort of music, preserve a, a forensic pathway and uh, you know, for for honest actors, you know, you you can you can lose a judgment if you say, oh, you know, whoops, I lost all that stuff. It must not have been me, you know. But like, uh, lawsuits have hinged on whether, in fact, someone used somebody else's art, musical art, or whether they um, did not, you know. And this is the. Yeah, OpenAI and everybody else, they have built these systems and they, mm, let's split the difference between this is the state of the art and they made a choice, but they they do not preserve the connection between the training data. And so when these people start getting sued, which is going to happen, the judges are going to have a hell of a time with it because, you know, it's like, uh, it really does look a lot like his art, but it's different, but it looks like it. Well, you're allowed to imitate other people's art, but you're not allowed to. So, you know, the the Obama poster, Shepard Ferry, the Hope poster, he lost a big old lawsuit on that because it was you, the, the photographer was able to demonstrate that he traced over the image mm-hmm. that was used for it. He didn't look at it and then draw another one, you know. Yeah. And so the difficulty with the AIs is, is it is a different kind of um, collage, you know. You won't usually be able to say, okay, this is an exact match to my stuff. But the thing is, they have a strong case. They're like, listen, this thing is very much trained on my data. And it's very much using my data to make this picture. And my evidence is, look at it. Just look at it. You know? And then all all the the law is going to have to go on is like, what was written into the prompt? You know? And so if it says, in the style of such and such artist. But there are ways of talking these things into doing the style of the artist without uh, leaving a smoking gun behind. And prompt engineering should not be what these things hinge on. We are really going to benefit from having systems where you can trace the output back to the training data and be able to say what are the major components of this artwork, you know? Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, how can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Uh, I'm on Twitter. That's kind of my main jam. Uh, It's a genius, D-J-I-N-N-I-U-S. So... Uh, that'd be the place to follow me and um, yep maybe one of these years i'll have something to show uh, in the ai space but in the meantime uh, i guess my closing words on the subject is please calm down the people who have (laughs) please calm down the people who have persuaded you that artificial intelligence is going to go rogue are coming from a place of religious neurosis there is no reason to take them seriously 
artificial intelligence has a lot of promise. There are any number of ways in which it can be used by bad actors to do things, but it will not become a bad actor because it is not an actor. It is not an agent. It resembles one occasionally, but only very, it falls apart very, very, very fast. And so don't let it keep you up at night. And please don't beg the government to regulate software. It is a terrible outcome. It is totally unnecessary. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.